This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. My guest today, Shundron A. Thomas, is a professional investor and corporate executive with 27 years of high-impact leadership in the world's premier financial services institutions. As an executive, he is a pace setter in diverse organizational transformation and a trusted strategic advisor to the C-suite and boards of directors. He has earned an industry-wide reputation as an innovator in investment management, a champion of socially responsible investing, and for his authentic leadership style. Today, we will discover many secrets of executive and life success from this Wall Street insider. Let me tell you more about my guests. Chandran Thomas most recently served as president and chief executive of Northern Trust Asset Management and as a member of the management group of Northern Trust Corporation. Prior to joining Northern Trust, Chandran served as vice president in the equities division of Goldman Sachs and was previously employed with Morgan Stanley, holding positions in fixed income sales, trading, and research. Chandran recently announced his departure from Northern Trust to co-found a new diverse-owned and led firm that will provide debt and equity solutions to privately held U.S. companies. A key focus will be identifying untapped market opportunities and partnering with women and ethnically diverse business operators. Black Enterprise Magazine identified him as one of 2011's 75 most powerful Blacks on Wall Street, and again in 2017 as among the most powerful executives in corporate America. In 2020, Savoy Magazine named him as one of the most influential Black executives in corporate America. In 2021, ThinkAdvisor selected Chandran as a member of the 2021 class of industry luminaries, and Investment News honored him with a Lifetime Achievement Award for Leadership in Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. He graduated magna cum laude with his bachelor's degree in accounting from Florida A&M University. He earned his MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business with concentrations in accounting and finance. Chandran also completed executive leadership programs in corporate strategy and corporate governance. The author of four books, including Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. He is a frequent public speaker, media commentator, and lecturer. A devoted husband, Chandran is also the father of two sons. So Chandran, welcome to the show today, to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Karen. I am so delighted to have you. I've been waiting and looking forward to this opportunity to talk to you, to hear from you. And I know that my audience is going to get great value out of everything you have to say today. So thank you again. 
I'd like to start, Chandran, by really just unpacking a little bit about your career and where you've been. We know that you were with Northern Trust in this president CEO kind of a role. However, you also had other positions at Northern Trust. Tell us a little bit about your career there, what you did, just so we have a little bit about that background. Sure, Dr. Karen. So obviously I've spent the majority of my career, uh, nearly three decades in financial services. And, and as you allude to, the last 18 years uh, I spent at Northern Trust uh, where I frankly worked with wonderful people and had a tremendous experience. Uh, you know, the culmination of my time at Northern Trust uh, was the last five years where I spent uh, leading our, our global investment management business. Uh, we had the responsibility and the privilege of overseeing about $1.3 trillion in assets across a wide range of asset classes and strategy uh, that we manage for clients all over the world. And by virtue of that role, I also served on the management group of the corporation, as you noted. Over my time there, uh, I had the opportunity uh, to have a variety of roles in leadership. Uh, those included uh, beginning my career there, working on the wealth management side, advising clients on uh, specialized strategies across the U.S. I had the opportunity to lead corporate strategy, uh, working with and advising our business leaders and our CEO, and actually worked for two CEOs in that capacity. And from there, I transitioned to roles where I was president and chief executive of our wholly owned uh, broker-dealer business, so overseeing our capital markets activities. I got to start businesses at Northern Trust, including founding uh, our exchange-traded funds business, uh, which was part of our asset management business. So those were some of the uh, responsibilities that I had leading up to the most uh, recent role uh, before my recent departure. Okay, wonderful. And so prior to Northern Trust, you also had some roles at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Tell us about those and how they were different or the same as what you were doing at Northern Trust. Well, the way that I would describe, if, if I uh, characterize my overall experience, there are three primary things uh, that, that I've done. Uh, one is I've had the opportunity to work as a professional investor and in various aspects of the investment management business. In some respects, if you think of my time at uh, Goldman Sachs, I was serving what we would say on the other side of the coin. So I was serving as an advisor, uh, principally and largely to institutions, advising them with respect uh, to their investments. And so if you think about it that way, prior to my time at Northern Trust, I really would, would have been working in the capital markets, but specifically my clients would have been uh, large asset uh, managers and what we might refer to as asset owners or those who have fiduciary responsibility uh, for overseeing and, and investing assets on behalf of institutions and individuals. I started my career uh, at Morgan Stanley. And the difference between uh, the roles I had, say, at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs is I principally worked on the fixed income side of the business at Morgan Stanley, where I was working on the equity side of the business at Northern Trust. And uh, the predominant amount of my time, although I worked in uh, sales, uh, trading, and research, was actually spent in research. Uh, so a lot of the foundational part of my career in finance was spent uh, doing high-yield research and equity research. Well, it sounds like you've had a lot of diverse experience on financial services, almost like A to Z or soup to nuts <laughs> in terms of that background. 
And I know that you are a man of faith, that you are a Christian man also. And one of the things I was wondering, because when people think about Wall Street, when they think about financial services, faith is not the first word that comes to mind when they think of people in this industry. So what was it like to be a man of faith in these settings? And how did you show respect even for those people who didn't share your faith? What was that like for you day to day? It's interesting because this is, a, a as you know, a pretty uh, prevalent topic. You, you hear people uh, of faith talk about how do you go about uh, integrating uh, your faith in your work. Uh, so let me start with something uh, that has been very true for me. And this was established very early on in my career. Uh, a personal belief or a philosophy, which I think is founded in the basic truth, we really do not have two lives. There is no such thing as my, in my own mind, uh, my faith life, and faith life and my work life or my secular life. I believe that we have to, to be our best selves, bring the fullness to, of who we are uh, to all of our experiences and all the, the aspects of our lives. Now, I'm not uh, Pollyanna in any way. I realize uh, sometimes the challenges people may have or they feel at least in that context but that's something for me, Dr. Karen, that was, was settled very early. One of the ways that I think about this is in the articulation of one's values. So values are deeply held beliefs. And I tell people, and I share very transparently my beliefs, and at the top of the list for me is my faith. But to the question of how does that impact or affect how I deal with others, uh, one of the ways it affects how I deal with others is I believe every single person is created in the image and likeness of God. And I believe we are to love every single individual. And that love is not predicated on what they believe, if those beliefs are the same or common or different than mine, right? And I think when people understand that while you are committed to your Christian faith, that faith does not have to, in a sense, negatively impact who they are. And in fact, our faith lived out in the best ways, I think, affirms not only the personhood, but the divinity of other people. Uh, and so that's how I thought about it in terms of at least my perspective in approaching this. Well, I want to unpack that a little bit more because this is such an important topic. So when you think about being on Wall Street and in these financial services organization as a person of faith who does believe that every person is created in the image of God, who has value, seeing value in each person. What did you do differently? Or how did you show up differently? Let's talk maybe about an example or some experiences that perhaps maybe other executives who may not be values-based or who may not be faith-based, they might not do in that service sector where you're operating. So this is a great question because there is, of course, this practical reality. As soon as you as an individual articulate and espouse faith, as soon as you maybe more specifically articulate values, deeply held beliefs, there will always be some conflicts, right? Because people will have different beliefs, whether they are stated or unstated. And so one of the challenges that we all have to work through is how do I live out my deepest beliefs, my faith, in a sense, in a pluralistic society? where people uh, may not only believe, but because we behave based on what we believe, behave differently. 
I think there are a couple of things, and I'll touch on uh, very quickly at a high level three. And if you want to unpack more, we can do that. But the first thing is, I think you have to be transparent. So one of the challenges I actually believe uh, sometimes people of faith have is a reluctance to be transparent about what they believe. And the problem that we have in that regard is then people don't really know who they're dealing with. They don't know what you stand for and what you believe. And so we're trying to be so politically correct. Uh, there is an opaqueness, uh, maybe a lack of authentic authenticity, whether it's uh, intended or not. So that's the first thing. Uh, you have to be true and articulate about what you believe. The second thing is you can't simply force your beliefs on others, because if I'm going to be transparent, if I'm going to want to share what I believe, I have to be open to understanding what others believe. Now, I want to be clear here. It doesn't mean that we will agree on everything. It doesn't mean we, we will share always the same values, but it means I actually have to respect what other people believe, and I actually have to be open and intellectually curious, right? Three, it is important then how you approach situations when beliefs are in conflict, right? And so you have to first accept that those situations, it's not if they come, it's when they come. And so understanding how you go about that and always extending grace in whatever your approach those are the three things that I would start with that are fundamental, Dr. Karen. Yeah, those are really, really important. And so you've been sort of implying and saying that there are times when there's going to be conflict and when there may be beliefs and values that could be in conflict with one another in the workplace. Think of a time when you had to navigate maybe some of those challenges and difficulties. What's an example of how you took something that maybe on the surface could sound really hard? And you made it work some kind of way. Right. First of all, Dr. Karen, I have so many examples, uh, but I will tell <laughs> you, I, I'll give you one. So one of the things that's interesting in our business uh, and it, with professionals and financial services, a lot of the way that we are compensated is incentive based. That means there is a core part of your salary, uh, which is your salary. But quite frankly, um, for more seasoned and senior uh, professionals, the majority of their compensation can often be in the incentives. And there are considerations, obviously, whether you're in sales and there are metrics that you have to hit, or if you're in investments and there are returns you're seeking, but always there is going to be a level of subjectivity in how the allocation of incentives or compensation goes. I remember in one of my uh, first uh, senior roles, uh, we got to the time where we were allocating the incentive dollars. So if you can think of it, my responsibility is for all the groups that I manage to look at the performance and allocate what we would call pools of incentive dollars. And then if you can think about this, those people have to allocate the next level down to make determinations on what people are paid. Now, one of the things I always did is I empowered my managers, uh, but this is a trust but verify and verify from the standpoint that we're making sure what we're doing is equitable. And I noticed with uh, one of my uh, senior leaders uh, that there were a couple of the employees that he had tentatively allocated very small allocations. It happened to be uh, that uh, one was uh, diverse and, and one was a woman. Um, but I was trying to understand the context of that because for me, it just didn't seem equitable. And I know this may seem like a small thing, but in our kinds of businesses, this can happen all the time. 
And so I called uh, the manager in, I asked him about it. And the short version of the story was he had determined since they were relatively new, it would be easier uh, to pay them a relatively small amount to bias it towards others. And Dr. Karen, you'll appreciate this. Uh, you can uh, think of the, the parable of the vineyard and the workers and the principle which was used by the good vineyard owner. And while I didn't quote the passage, that was aligned with how I believed in principle. And so in short, I explained to this individual, we were making long-term investments in people who were part of our team. And if we were going to expect from them exceptional service, we had a responsibility to treat them equitably and exceptionally well. So we changed the allocation of how we pay. Now, um, that initially caused some tension, but over time, I developed a tremendously a strong relationship with that manager, in part because he saw over time the consistent principled approach that I took to everything that I did. Yeah, that's very powerful. In other words, you weren't just trying to bias the system in favor of a few people who maybe you cared about. He saw you be consistent in the application of these values day in and day out, no matter who the people were. And he got to see what the impact of that was long-term in the lives of these people who worked for the company and the impact on the company is what I hear you talking about. Right. There is a uh, sort of a, uh, another part to that story um, because it was interesting. He got to a point where he decided that he was transitioning from the firm. And the short answer of the story is he was in a similar type of situation. He was going to be in receipt of his last incentive payment. He had already announced that he was leaving. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that kind of situation because in that situation, theoretically, I could have used the mindset that he was using and how he allocated. You're leaving, so maybe we'll pay you less. But again, my principles were already always consistent. That incentive was based on the contribution he made during that period of time. I remember our last conversation, how appreciative and how grateful he was for how he was treated. But here's the thing, Dr. Karen, and this is why it's so important for us as believers. I didn't bring it up. He hearkened back to several years ago how we treated those other individuals. And it was a reminder to him of the consistency and the principle of how we treat people. There is nothing like experiencing the impact yourself to drive home a lesson. And so you were showing him by experience, I'll do the same thing with you and see how you feel about it. And the point being that he got to learn that being fair and equitable and using these principles in a consistent way was beneficial, not only to those people way back then, now specifically beneficial to him. And what I would say is beneficial to the whole corporation when people know that you can be a trusted leader, a trusted entity to operate in the way that you're talking about. And I'm of the mindset that when believers in the workplace truly operate from their values in the way that we're talking about, it benefits all the people, not just, you know, those who may be believers. Dr. Karen, I couldn't agree more. And I know you'll appreciate this comment, but that's why we also have to apply the practical wisdom of the word of God. The Bible is just not a compilation of interesting stories. Uh, it says everything uh, that pertains to life, there are answers, principled answers for the deepest uh, issues that we face. Uh, there is so much wisdom and instruction, uh, even for how we think about what we do every day in the workplace, but we have to see it as such. 
Exactly. And that's when we make the word really come alive as we apply it to our everyday experiences and our everyday lives. And let me pivot here a little bit and ask this. How diverse is executive leadership in top companies on Wall Street? I'm of the perception or impression that you might be a rare bird in those those environments. And in fact, I remember at one point you talked about being a black face in white spaces. So tell us what it was like to be a man of color, a black man on Wall Street in these big companies. What were both the challenges and the opportunities you experienced? So I'll start with the realities. You know, again, I spent my career in financial services and I truly love the business. I mean, there are so many aspects of it. And, you know, if I had to choose my career to do over, you know, a hundred times, I would choose the same profession. There is also uh, a a stark uh, reality that financial services, it just hasn't achieved uh, the promise of diversity. And so the reality for over the course of my career, regardless of what way we look at it, whether it's representation, if you think about it uh, for uh, gender and people of color uh, in particular, whether it's who we do business with, what do our vendors look like, uh, whether it's what executive management looks like, or even the governance structure. So you think about the board of directors, Financial uh, services has been among the lowest in many industry segments in terms of its record on diversity. You know, Dr. Karen, it's interesting because in some ways, while that reality is there, it was very apparent to me in some ways. And in some ways, you just became very used to it. I remember when I first started at Morgan Stanley, had an incredible experience in the firm. I worked in what we called sales and trading or the capital market side. So on a literally a single floor, uh, there would be as many as about 600 people spread across these enormous floors. And I can remember starting uh, my first year and there were a total of uh, four African-Americans on that entire floor of 600 uh, people. Of course, I knew them all, you know, you, you meet them. And so that was just a microcosm of, you know, the level of representation As I navigated through my career, uh, my reality was that becoming uh, a a manager very early on and then in executive management, it was common, whether I was in boardrooms, whether I was calling on clients all around the globe, for me to singularly not only be the only African-American, many times the only person of color. I have a high regard for my my organization in terms of how we've advanced to diversity. Uh, but to be sure, in 2017, right, and we're nearly close to 130 years into the lifespan of the organization, I was the first person of color on the executive management team. So I'm answering your question and saying that's the factual reality. The short answer to the challenges, and we can unpack this, is this. When that is your norm, it means that the people that you work with aren't used to experiencing you. And so the prism with which they assess you, which they judge you, is often not with ill intent, can be based on a set of biases or prejudices, in part because they really have no constant or meaningful direct interaction with people of the same background. And what that means for you is you are constantly navigating several worlds. 
you are constantly in a position where you have to make sure that people, in a sense, not only uh, appreciate the value that you bring in your competency and your expertise, but they actually just feel comfortable working with you. And I imagine that that sometimes could be very difficult to increase the comfort level. I remember some research done by the Center for Creative Leadership where the burden is really on the person of color to put everyone else at ease. It's not necessarily been the case in corporate America where the burden is on the majority people to create that sense of being at ease. So what did you do as you navigated through preconceived notions, prejudices, biases, lack of experience that people might have with people who are different How did you help them to see you for who you really are? Well, the first thing I would say is this. I was blessed to have uh, some very good mentors and sponsors. And I want to be clear, Dr. Karen, while I certainly had mentors and sponsors who uh, were African-American, the vast majority of the people who were mentors and sponsors to me, given the nature of the business, actually, in most instances, were white men and women, mostly white men. I want to start there because without having those kind of relationships with people who took a vested interest in your success, it is very difficult. Um, I won't call it impossible, but extraordinarily difficult to navigate those spaces. So first of all, you have to make yourself available for people to want to mentor you and sponsor you. And you you have to be able to find and establish those relationships. Two, beyond just mentors and sponsors, you have to be a more relational person. Our natural inclination as people, when we go into a new space or an unfamiliar space, is to look for people who we share some sort of affinity with. It gives us a sense of psychological safety. And so what you have to orient yourself to do is do something that might not naturally occur to you because of the search for that psychological safety, which is I'm going to consistently make an intentional effort to build relationships with people who don't look like me or may not share my background. And I want to be unambiguously clear about what you said earlier. I want to affirm it. Whether people believe that it is fair or not, more than not, the onus or the greater part of the burden is going to be upon you to do that. And so, you know, what I did is tried to turn the situation around as opposed to complaining about or bemoaning the fact, go with it as an attitude to say, God, I'm going to ask you, will you please give me grace as I seek to build these relationships? Uh, And I very much believe that God did that. The last thing is you've got to pay it forward. And paying it forward means that knowing what your experience is, I've went out of my way to try to make that experience different from others, uh, whether it be women, whether it be people of color. And I want to be clear, and it's not just women or people of color. If you were to talk to uh, people that work with me, I have just as many mentees that are white men and white women. My point is, everybody is transitioning different environments or navigating space. And I really do believe you actually reap what you sow. And so when you make that investment in others, the way that this thing works out, somebody's willing to make that investment in you. Yeah, I love this because what you're really talking about is how important it is to take the lead. I mean, if you're going to be a leader, you may have to lead in establishing the relationships and the whole paying it forward is that whole thing of reaping what you sow. It's like, okay, you're going to get back what you're putting out into the world. So you don't sit back and wait for it to happen to you first. You do it 
with other people, you model that and it comes back to you. I think that's that's golden. If people don't hear anything else, that's something they can hear. In other words, we have options. We have choices. We don't have to sit passively and wait for things to happen. We can get in there and because of how we relate to people, make some things happen. I also heard you saying this to me is very important. When we're talking about an environment that's sort of been, you know, if we think about Wall Street, that's sort of like the, the white male <laughs> capital or environment, you need some mentors who fit that demographic because they understand that world. They've been in that world for a long time. And so it's a mistake to think that, oh, the only mentors I need are people like me. No, you need people who are going to be advocates for you, know who you are, know the value that you're bringing. And that also fits with some of the CCL research as well. People having sponsors, people having mentors that are diverse uh, in comparison to them and can put in a good word for them in terms of how they're perceived and seen at other levels. So I think that's huge, by the way. You're starting a new venture now. So let me ask this. Tell us about the new venture. Why now? What's your vision for this company? And as I think about your career in financial services, there's probably a reason why you're choosing to do a new startup, if you will, rather than to do whatever you're doing within existing structures. So tell us about that. Sure. And Dr. Karen, um, I'll tell you, because we're, we're in kind of a gestations phase, so we haven't gotten to the public launch of the business that's forthcoming. But let me tell you, you know, what the focus uh, of the business will be. So I'm co-founding a business. Uh, that will be in what we refer to as the private investing space. So think of, you know, broadly asset management. We specifically will be focused on uh, investing in and providing capital solutions uh, to privately held lower middle market companies. To give you a sense of the size of those companies, these aren't startups, usually they're established companies, but they can range in size if you were to do it, say, by revenue, from anywhere from say 10 million in revenue to 100, maybe on the high end, depending on how people uh, define it, 150 million in revenue. And there's a very particular reason, uh, a set of reasons why I'm interested in this opportunity set. And Dr. Karen, it's a function of where passion uh, meets purpose. One, I love uh, the business of investing, but given the experience I've had and much of what we've talked about, I think there is a more holistic way uh, to work with business owners and entrepreneurs in terms of providing capital solutions. One of the things that concerns me as someone who has been an industry leader for some time is, you know, over the course of my career, we haven't changed two very important things. Uh, Women-owned businesses and businesses that are led by ethnically diverse people or people of color do not have ready access to the financial capital and the relational capital they need. And so they have trouble, if at all, they're able to scale their businesses. The second thing uh, that I see is in our business, which has been uh, so important to not only our economy and economies around the world, there is such a a small uh, cohort of companies that are sizable and of scale that are led by ethnically diverse people. And so I want to change that dynamic. Um, given the privilege that I've had to do the things that I've done and the relationships I've built and what I've learned, I would like part of my legacy uh, when I move on to doing other things to be, I've been part of building a true business of scale that's led by diverse people, that we've made a significant contribution to expanding the access to capital 
to, yes, all businesses we work with, but specifically expanding that for women and people of color. And that we've done it in a way that we've not only provided superior investment and returns to our investment clients, but we've done it in a way that we've provided measurable social impact. And so that's why I'm going to do what I'm doing. Oh, I just love this. So first of all, let me say thank you for your passion, meeting purpose, and deciding to do this because it's a risk also to you and doing a startup yourself. And of course, when passion does meet purpose, we're willing to take those kinds of risks and do what we really feel that we're called to do. So you've had a lot of experience in the financial services world that's prepared you, I would say, for this moment. Talk a little bit about that. What have you learned from the relationships and the companies that you've worked with already that's going to make a difference in how you lead in this new venture? There are several lessons uh, over the course of the career, um, a couple of prevalent ones that will be really important in this context. One is, you know, I'm a big believer in socially responsible and sustainable investing. I'm a fundamental believer, and I've seen it in practice, and we've demonstrated in, in, in the kind of products and strategies we've managed in my prior role that you can not only produce good investment returns, as a matter of fact, exemplary investment returns, and do it in a way that has positive impact. You can do it in a way that reinforces uh, principles that are important uh, to uh, a strong functioning and equitable capital market. And so that's really important to me. And so, so it's one thing to think as a theory that that can happen, but when you've had the kind of experiences that I've had and we've been able to demonstrate that, that very much informs and gives a level of confidence to pursue these kinds of things. That's number one. Two, I've seen in various ways that notwithstanding how much uh, value we've seen uh, created in our, in our system of capitalism, which I believe from an economic system is the best system there is, it's not perfected. So to say that it's the best system is far from saying it's perfect and it's far from saying it's equitable. And so I do think there is a more superior form of capitalism that creates greater economic opportunity for all communities, right? And I've seen that and I see rising leaders who believe in that. Um, so that's something else that informs you know, some of my thinking. Uh, the third thing is I've come to understand in a deep way the importance of what I would refer to as relational or social capital. And so while uh, businesses certainly will struggle, can even be starved for the lack of financial capital, in many instances, it's even more important for them to have social capital, to be connected to the resources, the best thinking and advice that they need to build their business. So to understand that component of driving success in business. The last thing beyond just my experience is building businesses within Northern Trust. I, I tell people I have my own entrepreneurial business. You know, I launched a retail business and we have published interests. I like to say to people, I've lost money with the best of them. But what I would say is my various entrepreneurial experiences has helped me in some way. If you can appreciate this and I'll end with this comment, it's hardened me such that um, as the poem uh, says, if, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, and treat those two imposters just the same. Paul would say, I've learned to be a base and a bound, right? And I think that's important when you're going to take on entrepreneurial risk. Oh, that's a wonderful example and picture of it. 
because you're going to have a little bit of both and you can't throw in the towel and give up just because the hard times have come. And that's where passion and, and purpose really make a difference because you can stay on track even though you're running into challenges. So when you talk about socially responsible investments and you talk about the fact that those are still profitable for the investors, let's give some examples of what does that mean? What does that look like? So people have an idea of what is socially responsible as opposed to maybe in some other category. So there are various aspects of social responsibility that you can think about. So for example, you can think of workforce development and training. Think about in the U.S., and this is one of the things that frustrates me sometimes. I see surveys that say um, we have a talent drought, right? And the way that I think about it is, if you think in our economy, I don't think we're short on talent. I don't think that we've made the appropriate investments in people to equip them with all of the ready skills that we're demanding. But people are infinitely talented if we will take the time to invest in them. And sometimes what happens in pursuit of short-term financial success or profitability, one of the things that gets cut, right, is the investment that you make in the workforce or development of people. So one area of social responsibility is companies that are focused on driving that development of the workforce. They are not only equipping uh, and creating a social good because of the skills that they are investing in people but they're actually having success in their business. Other areas could be areas like quality education, right? You're seeing some very creative ways that companies are uh, supporting their workforce uh, to have the means and the resources that they need to uh, continue or uh, reinvest in their education. Or they might be uh, channeling some of the profits for their organization to other uh, entities outside the organization that are building on that. Another area of social responsibility is around diverse representation, equity, and inclusion. And so having a set of business uh, principles that say not only are we going to have diverse representation among our ranks and our management, uh, but we're going to be thoughtful in terms of creating more opportunities for diverse business owners to do business with us. uh, Those are just a sample set of ways in which you can think about being socially responsible have social impact. And not only do they not take away uh, from uh, the economic vitality of businesses, I'm going to argue that businesses that do those well tend to be some of your best businesses. So what I'm hearing you say is that when social responsibility is taken seriously, not only does it not cut into the success of the business, that business has an opportunity to be even more successful on the metrics that they care about, whether it's the profitability, bottom line, all that sort of thing. So that's what I'm hearing is it's not just, okay, I'm going to be socially responsible and it's going to hurt me and I'm going to have to pay a price. And why should I do that? In my mind, Dr. Karen, this should make sense, right? I like to say to people, businesses are people powered. In most Western economies, and the U.S. is at the the top of the chain on this, the majority of our businesses are service-oriented businesses. That means the value proposition doesn't exist without the exceptional efforts of people, right? And so if you think about it, being socially responsible, right, in my mind, it just makes sense, right? Because ultimately, um, that's about investing broadly speaking in society, but in a, in a microwave, it's about investing in people. You know, I'm thinking about times when I have been a, a, a consumer in a business setting 
and have been, let's say, in front of someone who maybe didn't get this kind of development that you're talking about, and their customer service, customer experience skills, let's say, really are lacking. And the way that that, how would I say, reflects on the business and how I might view that business and whether I want to continue to do business with that business. I think a lot of people forget that those frontline people who are interacting with your ideal customer or client, they are modeling something. And you have to say, is that the message that you know we want our best clients and prospects out there to have about us? Just quickly, it brings to mind, I was talking to a friend. He's a, a medical doctor. Um, he has a specialist practice. And he's a part owner um, in uh, a practice. And he was saying when he recently joined, what struck him is how uh, poor the service was of the individuals that they had staffing uh, the reception uh, and serving the customers. And so he said what he did early on to his partners is he said, I want us to revisit what we're actually, he started with before training the pay. He said, we're just really not paying competitively and we're not investing in the people. And this has real impact on our business. And he felt so strongly about it that he said he was willing to take less economics because he said the long-term value of that would be so important to the company just because of what you said, the nature of that client experience. So again, these things tie together. They're, they're, they're not just you know sort of theoretical things or throwaway statements to make people feel good. They have very real economic consequences. And to be sure, our only driver should not be economic in the sense of dollars and cents. Because one of the wonderful things about working with people is people make investments in one another that in some ways you can never pay for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's also using a different metric. And the investment in people is really an investment in the company. It's an investment in success that people maybe have undervalued, perhaps in the past, really haven't thought about what that really means and what that really looks like. So now that you're going into this new venture, share with us a little bit about what is your philosophy of leadership? How do you define it? And how are you going to bring this style of leadership forward in your new company? Sure. So when I think of leadership, uh, to be fair, uh, there are numerous definitions, but when I boil it down, it comes down to really one word for me, which is influence. And I think of that influence being positive influence. Now, the reason I say influence, because many times when people think about leadership, they think about it from the standpoint of position and, and most notably a position of power. They think about things like uh, you know, are leaders born or made? And I said, it's really a false dichotomy. The way that I think about it is this, every single one of us is born with leadership capacity. And the way that I think about quote unquote positional leadership is everyone can lead from whatever position they're in. Now to be sure, Dr. Karen, you're going to have a different platform or a different opportunity set of how much you can influence based on your position but every single person. So I start with that philosophy because the reason, and I share that with people, because I want every single person that's part of the organization to know, it's sort of like the scripture. Uh, he says to them, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If there weren't, I wouldn't have told you so. And he's not talking about in the sense that people think a physical mansion. He's talking about a space, an area, a room of influence. He says, look, 
there's enough room in the kingdom for everyone to have influence if you use what God has gifted you with. And that's the mindset that you want to give to every single person, right? As that's part of your organization. And then you want to empower them in whatever their areas of influence are such that what you're doing is you're always building leaders, right? The thing that when you do that is from a philosophy standpoint, to be a good leader, you have to be humble. So we stress humility, but not talking about it, it's demonstrating it. And I believe there is no such thing as being an exceptional leader if you can't, in the same sense, demonstrate exceptional followership. It was why, you know, uh, disciples, including Paul, would say things like, you know, basically follow me as I follow Christ. Like, I don't even have a right to ask you to take my lead if I can't demonstrate to you that I'm willing to humble myself in the right circumstances and the appropriate circumstances and take the lead of others. So that's the, the, the other thing that, that we talk about and the things that you want to model from a leadership standpoint. The last thing I would say is all of us are truly fearfully and wonderfully made. And what that means is we will lead differently. There's no one way to lead. And so one of the things I believe in, and you can use tools to help people find out what their strengths are, what their inclinations are. But the thing is to help people understand what's their orientation towards leadership, what's their bag of tools, so to speak, what's the most effective ways in which they lead so that you're helping them cultivate their leadership. Actually, this is a great picture and a great example, because if I think about the Apostle Paul, if I think about the Apostle Peter, they led in different ways, and yet they both were very effective. And they used the, the, the personalities that God gave them, the experiences that God gave them and led from who they are to be effective in the ways that you're talking about. So you're really talking about sort of customizing the approach. So it's not just a cookie cutter and you have to put on Saul's suit of armor on everybody. You know, David said, I can't fight in this. So you're really talking about the customized aspect of it, which I really, really appreciate. And then when you were talking about followership, you know, when I was in the military, I was stationed at West Point as one of the assignments that I had. And there's sort of a model that really from the, the ranks of great leaders really come people who are first great followers. And so it is that back and forth, that yin and yang, you, you lead and you follow, you're able to do both. So who are some of the leaders that you admire? And maybe some of the ones you might have modeled in some way, uh, because you thought that what they were doing made sense. Yeah. Well, I'll start, um, you know, over the course of time, uh, there are leaders in all of the organizations that I've worked for uh, that, you know, you borrow different examples of how they led and what you've seen. And so um, that that's more of a, a general observation. Some of the specific uh, names that come to mind for me, uh, I really uh, uh, have always been a student and impressed by the life and the work of Dr. King. Part of it is to believe that he could take on the mantle he did. And think about how young he was when he started down that path. And I think a lot of people don't uh, appreciate the weight that is upon leaders. I mean, when you're in the crucible of that leadership, to do it in a way that basically he did not choose to fight force with force. That, you know, there are certain aspects of who he was as a person, as a leader. I just thought, I always think that it's just, just a phenomenal example of leadership. You know, I think of uh, Nelson Mandela in some similar ways. 
I think of a leader like John F. Kennedy. People, it's almost like a throwaway comment, but his vision in a number of different areas, including uh, focusing uh, on space exploration in the way that he did and how you could organize a, a nation of people around that. And so many people, we think about the getting a man on the moon, but everything that came out of that in terms of technological development and all those things, because this was a person of vision. I think most about the best leader that I have known in the example that I constantly look toward, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's not simply because I'm a Christian or a person of faith. I mean, when you really study the life of Christ, the way in which he led, the way that he intentionally developed others, the level of compassion that he showed for so many different people, uh, the humility that he lived, notwithstanding what his status was and what his power was, right? I mean, you, I could live three lifetimes <laughs> and not consume all the leadership lessons, but certainly uh, that's one that stands out for me. And then the most proximate to me, I have to say this, my parents, who are also my pastors, I have, if, if God didn't bless me any other way, but to give me the two parents that he did in the leadership example, they still show before me every day. I am so glad you mentioned your parents because I was going to ask you about them next. I wanted to ask you about, they're not corporate executives, okay? They're pastors. And yet I know that they've made a great difference. They're some of your most important advisors. And I want you to talk a little bit about why their advice and counsel is so important to your success. And also your wife, your wife is an important part as well. Yeah. So I'll start with my parents and, and then we'll get to the, the, the most important person on this side of life for me, my incredible wife. My parents, the thing that is interesting to me is, you know, uh, they were, people would say bivocational because they both worked uh, and then they were pastors. I saw the sacrifice that they've made throughout their life in always prioritizing people. And that set a certain orientation for me. What I saw from them is the inescapable and the unrelenting commitment that they had to their beliefs. And that was regardless of whatever the outcomes were, right? And I saw the truth lived out in their lives, not something that they said and then that, that their words were dissonant. And the reason that they are such important advisors to me is because, well, again, they didn't work in financial services, could uh, not necessarily be intimately concerned with some of the nuances of much of what I do. What I realize is this, as a leader, most of the important decisions you make are value-based decisions. And so their ability to advise me on values-based and principle-based uh, decisions are second to none. Uh, my wife, all I will say, because I could say so many things, is I really do mean this. I sit in a, a position where a lot of what I do is visible and people can affirm the things that they see because they're visible. But so many of the best part of us, because we're one, is her. Her stability, her consistency, her discipline, her love, her prayer life, her exceptional qualities that she gives not needing to be seen all the time are such an example that I, I can't even put a word on it. 
And then you couple that with, I think, in the right kind of marriage relationship, which is what I have, it's the closest experience that you have to knowing and experiencing the love of Christ. And so I experienced the love of Christ through her. Wow, that is really so powerful. I love that. When you think about leaders in the public, private sectors, and in the church, what do you think we need to see from those people in today's world? If you had to just boil it down. Yeah, this is a really important question. It's a really important question. One is because, and I want to say this as constructively as I can, we use the term leader too easily. And we've applied the term leader to people who have positions or who are managers, who maybe in some respects, for lack of better terms, are overseers, but they really truly do not demonstrate the qualities of leaders. And so what I want to say for people who are empowered by their position, the first thing I would say, we need people to really step up and be leaders. And where that starts for me is with compassion. Compassion, if you literally look at the etymology of the word, it means to suffer with. And we have so many people in power today that are more concerned about being in power or about what they can do for themselves that they are not compassionate. They are not suffering with others. They are not serving others. So the first thing I want to see is a return to the true heart of leadership, which is about humility, which is about service, which is about compassion. That's number one. The second thing I want to see is more transparency. You know, it's interesting to me, you, you hear people that are quote unquote put forth as, as leaders. And, and if you listen to them talk sometimes, it's some life that apparently none of the rest of us can lead. They've never made mistakes. They're right about everything. And at the end of the day, there is a great lack of transparency, not among all, but of among many so-called leaders. We need to be more honest. We need to be more transparent. And then the last thing I would say that we need to see from leaders is this simple word, sacrifice. We talked about the perfect example of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. Garden of Gethsemane. He's sitting there, right? And he's struggling with what is a decision for sure virtually none of us would make. And he said, it's so hard that if there was another way to do it, I wouldn't do it. But you know what? Your will, not my will. And we don't see people sacrificing for the mission, for the cause enough. We don't see people sacrificing for others enough. So again, those are the things we need to see. We need that compassion. We need that transparency. We need that sacrifice. Thank you so much. Now, I know you've been so passionate on leadership in these subjects. You've written a number of books, and your latest book is called Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. Tell us a little bit about this book, why you wrote it. If someone reads it, what are they going to get out of it? Yeah, who's it for? Yeah. So, you know, I've had the privilege of writing, uh, uh, this is the fourth book, but one of the things, I always write about things that I can relate to or that have impacted me in different ways. And having the experiences that I've had, one of the things that I found is I have worked with so many extraordinarily talented people. But what I found, the more I would talk to and mentor people, and this may surprise you, I don't know if it will, Dr. Karen, I would say, not exaggerating, the majority of people that when you really get them to a private place were unhappy with their jobs, unhappy with their work. And I was, you know, 
thinking about this and thinking about even my own experience, the periods of times that I've had where there have been challenges or been despondent. And, and so it got to a, a lot of thinking about this. And I think it starts with uh, this belief that I have that when we work in the way that God intended, work is actually really intended to be joyful. But what it means is that we've got to step back and challenge and actually rethink our perspective on three different things. One is the workplace. I think of the workplace as not only just the environment in which we work, but the people that we work with. Our work ethic, understanding that there is a belief that work is inherently good and that it's not just about the, the material things or what I call the, the beyond that, the rewards, but it's about the intrinsic value that we get from work. And then finally, it's what I refer to as your work life. Understanding that you really want a vocation, not simply an occupation. An occupation is just, it's like a fee for piddling work. I mean, if you look at the etymology of that word, vocation is, it's something that you might call a career, a journey, your life's work. And when we can translate those things, when we can reshape our perspective, I believe, then we experience work in the way that God intended. And when that happens, not only do we enjoy it more, we're more productive. We have better relationships. We see our whole life experience because we spend most of our waking hours working in a different way. That's phenomenal. And I happen to know that one part of that in the way that you unpack it and talk about it is really paying attention to our own attitude about the environments that we're in and what we see and that a lot of times it's not the circumstances so much as our perspective of the circumstances. And we have a lot more options and control if we can shift even how we look at something that we're going through. So I think, yeah, this book is great. If you really want to understand work as a calling, if you really want to understand work as part of that purpose and passion that you were referring to, understanding it doesn't have to be a drudgery, God worked. And if we're created in his image, we're working as he worked in that sense. So that's very powerful in the way that I know that this book is kind of set up and, and, and where it leads. So how can people reach you, Chandran? Uh, just if they want to reach you through your website, if they want to get this book or whatever, give us some uh, information. Well, the first thing I would say is, Dr. Karen, when your first name is Chandran, you are easier to find than most. Uh, And that's because, for instance, the website uh, is chandranthomas.com. And so if people go to the website, not only can they find information about uh, the project, they find videos, but that's a place to connect. I know a lot of people in the professional workplace, uh, one of the primary ways that people connect is on LinkedIn. So it's very simple. I'm at Chandran on LinkedIn. Uh, And similarly, uh, on other uh, means of social media, whether it be Instagram, where again, at Chandran, you know. So for me, uh, when your first name is Chandran, it makes it easy to present yourself, particularly in a, a digital world where people can easily connect with you and find you. Absolutely. You don't even have to put a last name because who else has that name? So in the show notes, that will be there so people will know how to spell it and so on and so forth. So as we're wrapping up now, what are the additional words of wisdom that you'd like to leave for my audience of executive business leaders? Well, the first thing is just an encouragement to really find one's authentic self. And I believe that it's a continual journey where God is constantly revealing ourselves. But in finding that, to lead as our authentic selves and from our authentic place. And I think in order to do that, 
my own opinion is a couple of things have to be in place. You have to be humble. And I believe if you're going to be humble, you have to find yourself in the right position. And that starts with me as my position as it pertains to my relationship with God. Beyond that, encouraging people, transparency is so important. When we, in a sense, in an actual way or a proverbial way, are standing in the shadows or hiding in the shadows, my dad used to say, only bad things happen in the dark. And so I think there's something to be said figuratively about bringing ourselves to the light. It's like Dr. Karen, we talk about the light of the word when it shines upon us. It encourages us. It pushes us to be our best selves. And I think that's important. The next thing I would say is I want to double down on this important thought around compassion. You know, if we're fortunate enough to be in a positional leadership role, it means that we have a greater measure usually of authority or influence or power. And God will judge us for what we do with that. And we have this incredible ability to do good in the lives of others. Some of it is as simple, Dr. Karen, is having the right affirming words and appreciating from our perch what that will mean in the lives of people if our words are seasoned with grace. And the last thing is sacrificing. Sacrificing not only means giving uh, more sometimes than we feel like we can or should of our time, our talent, and our resources. Sacrificing also means dying to self. It means that whatever mission I've committed to, my ego can't be bigger than that mission. My self-interest can't exceed that. Now, for me, that becomes simple because my mission is a kingdom mission. I'm seeking first the kingdom. And so I've got to subjugate everything in my, else in my life, including my own self-interest and my own ego, to the kingdom and the greater good. I think you've done a wonderful job of summarizing this whole episode. And a lot of times I'll summarize, but since you've summarized so well, I will only add one or two things, which is this. I think that what I'm hearing, Chandra, from everything that you're saying is that don't wait for things to come to you. You can lead from where you are, from your position. So make sure that you not only receive from the people around you and go after what you may need from them in terms of mentoring, coaching, whatever, also pay it forward. And that this is not a passive activity. This is a proactive activity. And I think that's important for people to hear. Too often in corporations today, people are waiting for the boss to come and do something. And so if you said nothing else, it's don't wait. You are the leader. Go out there and do that. And that there's real value in living out our values consistently every day at work so that even those who don't share those values begin to feel, experience, and see how it benefits them as well. I, I, to me, those are two profound things just to add to everything that you've said. So I want to thank you for being on the show with me today, Chandran. And as we are closing things out, I just want to read a passage of scripture that I think kind of captures a little bit about what we've been talking about. This is Romans, the 12th chapter, starting with verse nine, and it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints. 
given to hospitality. I think that wraps it up. That's how you live. And that's the message that we can share with the audience. So to everyone out there, thank you for joining us today. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.